Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. We're also historically known to apply that exact same verse to themselves and to their calling as well as the voice in the wilderness. And both John and the Essenes practiced baptism or ritual washing, and both connected it to more than outward purification, which was the norm of the day. All of these things were always about the outward purification, the removal of sin outwardly, done by a man what he does, which is just acknowledged by God after he does it. But but John and the Essenes both practiced it in a way that had to do with an inward change of heart, focusing on the change of heart that would go with it. And so there are a lot more things that, that, that seem to align John with this community, but the fact is we simply don't know. But we do know that both John and the Essenes lived their lives in very similar ways. Besides the possible connection to the Essenes, we also know that John looked, acted, and lived like the prophet Elijah. This connection was a, was a prophetically connected one, as Jesus himself pointed out in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 14. And Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, that John was the present time fulfillment of the prophecies contained in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, which states that Elijah would precede the coming of the Messiah. Here's what it says in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. John did come in the spirit of Elijah, preceding Christ's coming. And he came preaching the message and doing the very things that the prophet Isaiah also said that he would, just as Luke makes reference to here in these verses. In fact, the quote that's used here in our passage in Luke is taken directly out of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. It says this, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so it is that based on God's word and calling, John emerges and he fulfills this role as the forerunner of Messiah, just as Malachi prophesied, just as Isaiah prophesied, coming in the spirit of Elijah, just as Jesus said, as he pointed to John. But John now emerges from his seclusion and he begins his public ministry of preparing the way for the long-awaited but soon-coming Messiah. 
making his path straight in the hearts of men and women of Israel. And as we read these verses, we get the clear and intentional sense from Luke that a major turning point is taking place in the history of God's people and in the story of redemption that's taking place in this moment. As Barclay notes in his commentary to Luke, the emergence of John the Baptist was one of the hinges on which history has turned. You know, I think there are many hinges as we look back through history, upon which history, God's history, his story, I always like to relate to that as some do with history as his story, because all of mankind's history is about God's story of redemption working itself out. But there have been many hinges that have turned. And I believe looking at World War II is even one of the hinges, because World War II was the impetus for the Jews going back to the land of Israel, just as the Bible predicts that they will and would. And they have. They're going back, even now today. But World War II was the impetus for that. There are many hinges throughout history, but this is one of them. And here, as the message, as John comes forth, he begins preaching his message. And his message is a simple one. Very clear, very simple. It's a baptism of repentance. John came preaching a baptism of repentance. Now, what's baptism? Well, baptism was not a new concept to the Jews. Not by any means. Uh, the Essenes, who I mentioned a few moments ago, they practice a baptism ritual that led to initiation into their community. And it was also administered to the non-Jews that were converting to Judaism. If you wanted to convert to Judaism, you went through a ceremonial washing or a baptism that took place. And it was also part of the cleansing rituals within Judaism itself. But what was different, what was different and is what John is doing here that's different was the combination of baptism with John's message about repentance and what that implied. This was a baptism of repentance that was meant to identify people with their sin, to get them to recognize and to identify themselves with their sin, but then to get them to recognize their need to get right with God through the cleansing which God himself alone could bring to their lives. Different than ritual cleansing, which they'd practiced up to this point, is that it pointed them to their need for a Savior to cleanse them. As several commentators describe it, John was calling the Jews, the very sons and daughters of Abraham, to acknowledge that they were sinners in need of a Savior. Uh, another commentator said John's baptism was associated with repentance. That is, it outwardly pictured an inward change of heart. You see, up to this point, the, the Jews knew about their sin. That, that's not the issue. They knew about their sin, but they looked to the keeping of the law for their cleansing from it. They looked to a ritual-based cleansing based on self-effort, which, which God only ratified after they did it. They didn't look to him for it. They looked to the law, to the practice, to the things that they were doing to cleanse themselves from it and not to a cleansing that would come from someone outside themselves. They didn't see their need for a cleansing for someone from someone outside themselves. But now John was focusing them on the real issue of sin, pointing to the fact that sin had to be dealt with. 
by someone other than themselves, that the rituals couldn't do it, that the law couldn't do it. You know, I don't know, and we're not told all of the messages that John preached, exactly what he said to the people, but I am sure that included in this are very much some of the things that Jesus would later say, and the Apostle Paul in particular said in the writing of the New Testament scriptures that that the law was meant to point us to the only one that could cleanse us from our sins. A recognition that the law could never remove our sins from us. It was just designed to make us aware of our sinfulness, to get us to the place where we would recognize that man would recognize that, that we had a sin condition that we couldn't resolve ourselves. And so John now comes focusing them on that cleansing for sin that could only come from God alone. And that made his message new, and it made it unique to the Jews. But it, what, what was meant to get them to look forward to and to prepare them for what Jesus, the Messiah, was coming to do for them. Do you realize that even though we, too, recognize our need for cleansing from sin that comes from God alone, at least I hope you do, that you recognize the fact that you're a sinful as a human being and that you need a cleansing from your sin that you can't resolve. You can't resolve that sin yourself that you've looked to Jesus for that cleansing, and we look to that, but we no longer preach a baptism of repentance as John preached it. But we preach baptism in Christ and participation in a symbolic baptism of identification with Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, since Christ has come and he's finished the work of redemption on our behalf, we now preach that when we place our faith in Christ, we are baptized in him as his spirit takes up residence in us and cleanses us and he forms us into new creations. Just as Galatians 3.27 tells us, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Let me say that again. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. You see, since Christ has come, he's finished that work of redemption on our behalf. We now preach that we look to what Christ has done for us. We trust in what he's done for us and and that we're baptized in him as his spirit takes up residence in us and he cleanses us as he forms us into those new creations. But we also preach and practice a baptism of identification with Jesus in his death identification with him in his burial, identification with him in his resurrection, acknowledging publicly through the symbolic ritual of water baptism what Christ has done for us. As we go into the water, we're symbolically depicting how we, by our identification with him, by faith, have died and gone into the grave with him. And as we rise from the water, we're symbolically depicting how we, by our identification with him, by faith, have been resurrected to new life. Our sins being completely washed away and buried with him forever. And through the baptisms we preach and engage in, we no longer prepare ourselves for the coming of Messiah and what he promises to do for us. But we engage in it by looking back by faith to how fully Jesus fulfilled these things for us through his work on the cross and we identify ourselves with him, you see. For us, baptism is exactly about what Paul describes in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. 
Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is a passage I read whenever we hold baptisms here at the church. It's our identification with Christ. It's it's in that public identification. We're declaring to people that we understand what has spiritually happened with us. Because of the provision that Christ has made in our faith in him, we've gone into the grave with him, our sins being buried with him, and we rise to new life in the new person, new creation that we've been made to be through Christ. It's what, what, what's also described in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Colossians 2, verse 11 says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Boy, I don't know about you, I love those last that ver- those last couple of verses there. <laughs> and we were dead in our trespasses. We were, we were dead. We were destined for hell. We were destined for an eternity of separation and eternal death apart from God. But he's made us alive together in him as we placed our faith with him. We've been alive together and we've been resurrected with him because of our faith, you see? And he's wiped out the handwriting requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What a good truth that is. What we were, what we were judged by the law, judged by the things that we could never find our righteousness in, because we always fell short. It's all been nailed to the cross. It's finished with Christ. And our baptism, the baptism we preach, is about that baptism in Christ and our identify, uh, identification with Christ. But, but what about repentance? What about repentance? Does this mean that repentance is no longer important or, or necessary in our message? Absolutely not. Let me say very clearly, absolutely not. Repentance is clearly an important part of our message, just as Peter declared in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's no way we can say that repentance is not a part of our message today. Repentance is an integral part of the believing faith that we place in Jesus because it is linked to our recognition that we cannot save ourselves and that we are in need of a Savior. It's a a willingness on our part to make a 180-degree turn from self-reliance to Christ-reliance. 
It's our willingness to make an about face from the direction we are going in regard to our life and in complete dependence to follow Jesus because we believe that he is who he says he is and he has done what he says, what was needed to be done for our salvation, that he will do everything that he says he will do for us as we follow him. It is an abdication of self-dependence in exchange for Christ's dependence. May I say that to you again? It is the abdication of self-dependence in exchange for Christ's dependence. Now, there's an ongoing debate within Christianity as to whether repentance means we must be willing to live differently than we are living before we placed our faith in Christ. Uh, Does it mean we need to be willing to give up all of the sinful things that we were doing? Does it mean bringing about our behaviors to be in alignment with the behaviors the Bible describes as holy and righteous? To answer that debate, let me just say this. The key question in the debate that I really think we need to answer that gets to the heart of this is our behaviors the scriptural focus of repentance? Are behaviors the scriptural focus of repentance? Here's my answer to that. No, but indirectly, yes. (laughs) How do you like that for splitting the baby? (laughs) No, but indirectly, yes. Well, just let me explain. I think it'll make sense what I'm saying. While a lot of people interpret the term repentance to mean a regretting and a turning away from sinful behaviors, it's really not the precise meaning of the word. Technically, repentance is a change of mind and not a turning away from sinful behaviors as we tend to relate to it or think of it. The Greek word translated repentance is the word metanoia, and and, and the meaning is simply a change of mind. A change of mind. But we do often speak of repentance as a turning of sin, a turning from sin, and, and there is some logic for this. You see, as the Holy Spirit begins to work on a person's heart, leading them to salvation, he begins by giving them a sense of their sinfulness, a convicting sense of their sinfulness. And and he does that based on that person's way of thinking and living, of, of how far off the mark their life really is in regard to the righteousness required by God. It's a It's a contrast in a sense he gives. And they get a sense and some understanding of the eternally destructive nature of their sin and of their sinful behaviors and where it's all leading. And they begin to realize that unless something changes and their sin gets dealt with, that they're headed for eternal condemnation and punishment by God. However, and this is an important however, here's where the focus changes, and it must change. If the focus remains on the need for a change of behavior, then that person will find themselves back under the law trying to change their behaviors through their own self-effort to make themselves right with God, which will never be enough for them to find salvation from Him. Never enough. I don't care how good a life you live. It will never be enough. That will never be enough to atone for your sins. You see, because as Paul tells us in Romans 3 and chapter 10, now remember, as Paul writes this, he's not just writing to the rest of the world. It's a statement he's even got himself in mind. But in Romans 3 and verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Double emphasis. None, no, not one. That's righteous. Yeah, even Paul. Paul, (laughs) 
Paul knew as a Pharisee of Pharisees, as a man who meticulously kept the law, that this applied to him. No, none, not one that's righteous. And as James tells us, for and, and Paul understood this, I guarantee you, but as James tells us in, in James chapter 2 and verse 10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, well, he'll be okay. No, no. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Listen, a focus on changing behaviors cannot be the key to salvation because changed behaviors alone cannot save anyone. Can't do it. The Old Testament law was given to prove this to be the truth. There were men and women in the Old Testament who kept the law. Maybe not perfectly 100% of the time, but they kept the law. They lived good lives. They did right things. They followed it meticulously. The Pharisees are examples of that. And yet, what does Jesus even say of the Pharisees? That unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. You know what a mind-blowing statement that had to be? For Jesus to say that, who could be more righteous in the keeping of the law than the Pharisees? And Jesus is saying, if you want to be saved, your righteousness should be more than that of the Pharisees. Look, what has to change isn't initially the behaviors. What must change is where a person looks for his or her salvation from their sin. The turning from sin is ultimately about a turning to Christ who saves us from it. It's a turning to what he alone offers us through his substitutionary work on the cross for us, believing that what he offers to us is sufficient to pay the price and penalty for our sin and trusting in what he provides to free us from our sin. When a man or woman repents, they change their mind about sin, about the Savior, about salvation, and about their own capability to deal with their sin. It's that simple. It's that simple. That's what the turning is about. That's what repentance is about. Wait a minute, pastor. What about behaviors? Then you're saying behaviors don't matter? Uh, No, I'm not saying that. Of course they matter. Of course they matter. It's like Paul in Romans 6. Should we we sin that grace grace may abound? His head was exploding. Of course not. Of course our behaviors matter, but sinful behaviors in our lives get dealt with through our belief and faith in Christ. Changing sinful behavior is not the focus of salvation, but changing our sinful condition as human beings is. And that's what happens at salvation. Our sinful condition with which we're all born into this world with gets dealt with by Jesus Christ as we place our faith in him and in his finished work on the cross for us. And then, then, with that fallen part of us dealt with, he puts us in the right position for our sinful behaviors to be addressed and dealt with. As Christ, through his work of salvation in our lives, breaks the power of sin that has held us in bondage all of our lives, and as he He makes us new creations, the word kainos in the Greek for new, New creations, literally new from nothing, not renovated, but brand completely spanking new, (laughs) giving us new hearts, his heart of righteousness beating in us, just as Jeremiah speaks of. And as he imparts his spirit to dwell in us, who is the source of powerful change, everything is then in place for outward change to begin getting worked out. Our minds begin to change in regard to sin as Christ leads us away from it all as his new creations and spirit-empowered creations. But it begins with salvation. 
And salvation has nothing to do with behaviors. It has simply to do with the recognition of who we are as sinfully fallen human beings and our believing faith in Christ who has done what is needed to deliver us from it. And once salvation takes place, the stage is now set for a change of behaviors to get worked out in our lives. You know, I think this this idea is so wonderfully demonstrated in Jesus' dealings with the woman caught in adultery. While the pious Jewish religious leaders, they wanted to make it all about her behaviors as they're trying to trap Jesus. They want to make it all about her behaviors. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't do that. He sets her free first, and then he addresses her behaviors. Listen to the account. It's in John chapter 8, verses 3 through 11. John chapter 8, verse 3. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, just picture him walking out there, plopping her down, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Yeah, I wonder what these guys were up to, too. (laughs) Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. (laughs) So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you see? Do you see? He frees her from condemnation and then he deals with her sin. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.